episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Callie Lawrence, Licensed Professional Counselor, who will be talking about her work in an area of interest self-compassion for cynics. Welcome to the show, Callie. Thank you for having me. Super excited to talk about all this stuff. Me too. And I love the title of this episode, self-compassion for cynics. Um, but let's get started. Tell us, what are your credentials and experience? So I'm this LPC. Um, I've been doing it for about seven years, two of those as an intern. Um, but kind of that whole time I've been in a private practice type setting. So I, I know I've always wanted to work with, you know, just adult individuals. So that's all of my experience. I worked with teens briefly as an intern until I realized, well, that's not going to work for me. Um, but yeah, it's always been with a focus on anxiety and perfectionism, kind of just navigating life or existential crises, things like that. So I've always focused on that kind of presenting issue, which can bring in, you know, various people and obviously other issues show up too with that. Oh, but for sure. That's, that's always been kind of the setting I've worked in is well, private practice and just with individuals who are trying to resolve. It's like kind of the, the high functioning people that are like, mm-hmm. I'm doing so well in life, but why do I feel like a mess inside? Mm-hmm. So uh, what is the name of your practice? Mindful Austin Therapy. So at Mindful Austin Therapy, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? So I never accepted insurance until, was it last? No, earlier this year, there was someone um, who went on maternity leave and she was wanting to refer clients. And so I got on Blue Cross. So there were some clients I've taken there. So technically I'm paneled with them, but I'm not focusing, I guess, on that. And so it's, it's nice to like 
create more access, you know, because therapy is a cost prohibitive thing for sure. a lot of us. So I think that's a great part of it. Um, but overall, it ends up being hard to just take that to make something, you know, sustainable for business. For sure. So um, are you not accepting new Blue Cross uh, members right now? I, I will when it's a personal referral. It's, that's kind of where I'm at too with um, clients. If it's personal referral or like say someone listens to this and like, oh, this speaks to me or, you know, um, then if, if they kind of reach out on their own that way, then definitely open to taking insurance in that case. So okay. more, yeah, more on that individual way so that I'm sure it's a, a good fit versus it just being like a catch-all of, you know, anyone gotcha. in therapy. So being more selective now that people are coming in that, you know, specifically want to work with me versus just someone who takes their insurance. Fair enough. Okay. So um, do you have a sliding scale or a reduced fee available for clients? I do. I've got a um, number of people available for sliding scale. And so if um, like if one of those clients either moves up to a full fee or we're done working together, then that opens up another space. So there's mm-hmm. probably about six people right now that I have on sliding scale. So that's about the number that I have available. You know, none are available currently, but that's the number that can be available um, at any point, because yeah, therapy expensive, and it's people that need that. You know what I mean? When they're right. wanting to do the work, it's like trying to find. How can ways. you say no? Yeah, it's it's hard. Like you, you want to be accommodating as much as possible as a therapist. So it's just finding that right balance. But yeah, definitely, I'm appreciative that I have that because I think of some of those clients where I'm like, no, like they put in the work, they're doing all the stuff. Like I would hate for them to have to stop therapy because right. they, you know don't have a job that can pay for these things as much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments available? No, I, I only have one day a week that I work a bit later. So Monday evenings, um, and those are always taken. So that's, they're there, but it's like so rare that it's an opening since that's, you know, for a lot of people like what they want, but pandemic, I guess the benefit has been the flexibility of people, doing video sessions. So it's made it easier for like more times of the day to not seem like it was interrupting normal work hours for them. Yeah. Now people can do therapy on their lunch break. Exactly. I, so many therapy sessions were like, Oh, we're in a break room right now. Or, you know, or in a car. <laughs> yes. The car therapy. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? So I didn't know what I wanted to do really in undergrad, I ended up getting a degree in philosophy and just a minor in psychology. Um, and I did that because I just loved the field. You know, it interested me. There was no thought of like, oh, and that will lead into blank. Cause what does a philosophy degree do for you? Not much. It's like, oh, become a lawyer. I guess that was a thing. Um, so yeah, I graduated with that, had no idea what I wanted to do. So I tried to just apply for PhD programs in philosophy and, um, was kindly rejected <laughs> from them, <laughs> which is a blessing, you know, like that was just me being like, I guess I'll do this. So right. um, after that, not working out, I kind of just was like, all right, what, 
what seems available, what will I do? And my family, there's a lot of teachers in my family. And so I just got alternative certification. So I became a middle school teacher um, for my first job out of college. So I taught English for a couple years. And then after that, it was like, you know, this isn't what I want to be doing. There are parts of it that work, you know, but then it's just not the best fit. So I kind of like reflected back on what are some common threads through life, be it work experience or just anything that I'm like, oh, that consistently is a good fit with me. And so I spent time trying to explore that and kind of thinking, what did I want to be when I was a kid? And like, just psychologist was always a word that popped up. And I always liked one-on-one conversations with people and exploring the human condition and all of that. And so um, then I was like, okay, I'm going to go to grad school for counseling. And then for a bit, I just had like admin assistant job or, you know, a little bit. And Mm -hmm. then I um, started teaching high school PE for a couple of years while I was in grad school. Cause that was just a way to you know, still have a job and income. And then I would go to school at night. So yeah, mainly teaching have been the, is the career path with like a little bit of just side work in there. And then after grad school moved into doing therapy full time. Very cool. Um, my sound engineer, Amanda is going to love that you, um, got a bachelor's in philosophy. She has a bachelor's in philosophy, And she was really interested in the philosophy of sound. And now she's a sound engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So rare to see, like meet anyone with a philosophy degree. And I went to a small, like private school in San Antonio. And I think there were. Trinity? Sorry. St. Ed's was grad school. um, Incarnate Word. Incarnate Word. Okay. 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 Yeah. I'd never heard of the school at all. I'm from North Texas. And I was like, what is this? But I played soccer in college that so was just part of like one of the soccer programs with recruitment and stuff. And I went and I was like, Oh, what a lovely, cool. lovely school it is. But um, yeah, pretty small. The campus is beautiful. I know that's, that was nice too. And it felt cozy. Like the idea of going to UT or something, which would have been great too, but it's like, I can't imagine being 18 and just showing up to a campus that is like sprawling and like in a city, you know, it's just like, Oh my God. So there was something nice about the literal containment of my college experience and the smaller class sizes, but there were um, two other philosophy majors in the whole school while I was there, you know? So it's like, that's a pretty (laughs) tiny department. I went to uh, undergrad and grad school at UTSA and I lived in San Antonio for, I think close to eight years. Um, Yeah. So when, when you said a small school, I was like, it's either incarnate word or Trinity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so ultimately it sounds like it was a process, um, to, in figuring out that you wanted to be a therapist. Ultimately, what is it that drew you to being a therapist? Yeah, well, um, just on the, like the nature of the work side, I was like, okay, like connecting with people one-on-one, like that's always been my thing, probably in a too much of a way as a kid, I was very intense as an adult, I'm intense too, but it's like there's that desperate searching for like quick intimacy, you know, which can be dysfunctional (laughs) in certain ways. But I just, I recognize that in me that it's like, when I would meet someone, I'm like, no, I want to know the layers, like give me the depth Mm -hmm. immediately. And so all conversations I would have, it was like, I was always trying to connect more deeply and know someone more and be known by someone. And so I think that part fits pretty well that I'm just, I'm an introvert and I like deep one-on-one conversations um, but I think too, like growing up, I always felt very 
misunderstood in the world. And like, I, I was understood like I normal, I present nor, you know what I mean? So it wasn't like I was so out there, but it just always felt like, why is there something in me that doesn't seem to make sense with the world or, you know? And so I always felt like this, uh, like deep inner loneliness and this desire to be truly seen by someone. And so um, when I think about like what draws me to therapy, I think it's kind of to give other people what I so desperately wish I could have received at that time, which is someone truly seeing me. Cause I had people talk to me. I was validated by my parents. You know, it's not that I didn't get that, but I didn't feel like I was being seen for the parts of me that I most identified with. Right. And so like, for me, it's like, I just want people to know that they make sense in the world. And that, cause I just feel like there's so many of us that feel lost or out of place, even when we look like we're in place, you know? And so I just, it's like just such a powerful thing to let someone know, like you make sense, you belong, even if you feel off, like there's a reason behind everything and there's space for you. And so like just helping people feel less alone in mm-hmm. their humanity. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I think that it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a client the other day. It's so interesting how oftentimes we become or are the ways that we wish somebody was with us, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that with therapists too right it's like if we look at what our specialties are it's it's kind of like oh so that's their core struggle <laughs> you know what I mean like <laughs> like any therapist where you're like oh, okay that's the the clientele they're they most comfortably work with okay that's been a theme in their life be it personally or family dynamic or yeah. whatever you know and not to like be too narrow with who therapists work with and stuff but I always think that of like oh we're all getting a little bit of something we need based on um who we choose to work with or how we choose to work. Yeah. 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 I know for me, um, I work with, as you know, people who are trans and gender diverse um, and I am trans, right. I'm a non-binary trans man, as I say. Um, And so I work with people because I know what it's like to not be understood in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know how hard it is to navigate that whole thing. Um, and so for me, I, I want to help people with that. You know, mm-hmm. I, at one point it was an issue in my life, but I wouldn't say it is anymore. Um, but it's certainly something I enjoy and love doing. Yeah. Now, I, yeah, that's, it's like so moving for us working with those people, like you said, because there's that personal connection to it that it's just like, oh gosh, like I just, I want you to know you're okay. Like, that's just what I mm-hmm. want people to know is like, you're totally fine. Not to dismiss that their struggles, you know, like, right, right, right. like, Oh, you're fine. Get over it. But it's like who you are is so intact and so okay. And even if like, for me, I still struggle with a place of belonging in this world, but it's like not the same as when I was younger. Cause there's that sense of, I always belong to myself, whether I fit in or make sense to someone else that doesn't matter as much anymore. Like that's not going to be a wound inflicted upon me. Cause it's like, Oh, but I've arrived at that place of belonging. And so it's that hope that like for clients to have that better relationship with the struggles, they can't seem to shake, you know, cause I don't, right. Right. I don't believe that in therapy, like 
I should change someone. I don't want to. Like, and if someone right. comes to me and they're like, change this part of me, it's like, well, I'm not even interested in that. So maybe right. I'm not the one for you. It's more about like how to work with who you are and like finding peace and workability around that versus continuing to think like this part of me needs to be different in order for me to be whole as a person. Because I feel like the ways we try to change who we are end up being what creates more of the suffering as well. Right, right, right. So, totally. um, yeah, it's like, I, that's, that's not my job. I'm not here to like help someone find a solution to who they are. You know, right. it's like, how do we work with ourselves versus against ourselves? And what you were saying earlier about, you know, us having or being connected to the populations that we work with. Um, that's why I think life experience, life experience is so important as a therapist to have that in like a wide variety of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, and then the thing, go ahead. Feel that just because I feel like clients can feel that if you're just there as a professional with tools to help right. them versus being able to share the actual experience mm-hmm. with them. Not that it, therapy becomes about the therapist in the room, you know, but it's like, people need to feel seen and understood in order to even be open or contemplate making changes. And if a therapist is just there is like, I've learned about this, or this is how we treat anxiety. It's like people aren't like lab rats for um, theories (laughs) to be applied. It's like there, there needs to be that resonance in some way. Um, And I think it helps us have that empathy too, for what a client's going through. So they're not Mm -hmm. just uh, like, clinical symptoms being presented to us, but we're like, oh, right. God, I, I know that feeling and I know the resistance. And it's like, you can kind of know the inner workings of what's going on with them because you know how you felt. Um, so yeah, I think it makes the work so much deeper and just yeah. makes it easier for a client to work through it. Cause they can just sense that like, Oh, I, they get me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And regarding what you said regarding like finding a sense of belonging within yourself, to that, I want to say, everywhere I go, there I am. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I, yeah, I feel the same way. It's so powerful, right? Because you can still notice the disconnect of like, I don't fit in here. And these people don't see me. And it's like, and that's okay. That can exist at the same time as your own belonging and peace versus everything feeling so mutually exclusive in this world, right? Like, I don't fit. I'm not seen. Therefore, I'm not seeable. It's like, I'm not seen. I see myself okay, we're good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Holding the dialectic. Yep. So tell us uh, a little more about yourself. What are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music you're listening to, pets, et cetera? Yeah, so I um, love stand-up comedy. That's always been my religion, my spirituality, like what I've been most moved by. And probably because I was a kid who felt like I always felt like the truth wasn't coming out in the world. Like there were all these thoughts that we were having and like weirdness of being a person. And I'm like, why, why aren't we talking about this? Like, am I crazy? What's, why is no one saying this stuff? Uh, and I just always loved comedy even before I could understand why, but as a kid, cause it was like truth, like that's mm-hmm. just, it's just out there, you know? And it's a way to like, just connect on that deeper level and feel so seen. And so I've, um, yeah, that's just always been a love of mine. Like I will cry when I go see my favorite comedians as though I'm like meeting the Pope, you know what I mean? I feel like, <laughs> I'm just like emotional, right? It's not even when they say a joke, it's like they come out on stage and I'm like, this is everything. Oh my God. I'm in the presence of the Lord right now. <laughs> um, so really passionate, uh, 
about that. Enjoy. Who are your favorite comedians? Uh, I really like Nate Bargatze and um, Bill Burr, Patrice O'Neill, um, Daniel Tosh. A lot of not PC people too. So the, there's there's problematic people, and <laughs> Nate Bargatze is not problematic, but. The others can be problematic, I guess. Um, Anthony Jeselnik, like Nikki Glaser, too. Um, yeah, so those are some of the like bigger ones, I guess. So yeah, I used to go to a lot more comedy, local comedy shows. Um, Pre-pandemic, it was like becoming more of a habit. Now I'm like getting back into it. So that's a big thing I enjoy. Um, I love reality TV. Like trash TV is my thing. And screw anyone who says that that is, um, I don't know, stupid or why, why would someone watch that? It's like, it is so nourishing for me to watch the real housewives, every city. I'll listen to podcasts about it. Like, so obsessed with my reality TV and, um, have my dog, Chloe. She's almost 13, I guess. So love spending time with her. She's a see her as like a a demon angel of sorts. There's something disturbed (laughs) in her brain that I deeply love. Um, What kind of dog is she? She looks like a lab mix kind of, she's just like medium sized black dog, you know, very basic in that way. Um, But yeah, she's talking to the spirit world. I think a lot of times, but I don't (laughs) don't know if they're friends or enemies, not sure what's up with it, but she's very um, adorable and strange. And so love spending time with her or like, going out on walks, things like that, um, camping, hiking, Minda, Minda, all that, into playing sports. And yeah, so, and Spotify, I mean, love music, wide range of it. But at this point, I've created a playlist for every month since like 2016, I guess. Like oh, cool. I, every month I have a building playlist of like what I'm currently listening to at that time and like different new music. So if Spotify ever like, crashed or erased all that like I would lose my mind I'm like there is so much of my life every every month has been saved and curated here that's so cool I love that idea yeah it's just and then I can go back to like what was I listening to in February of 2017 you know and it's like oh that was me then like you know so and it yeah just nice to have that um I guess library for myself yeah yeah for sure uh, I'm a huge music fan too, and I am also a huge fan of playlists. Um, but I hadn't thought to create one every month. I really like that idea. Yeah, because sometimes it's like I don't have genre-specific ones, which would be nice, and maybe what people do at times. I think I've got like one or two that's kind of a genre, but um, my mind, I'm too precise and complicated with stuff and nuance, and so like to categorize something. I'm like, well, it has an element of this and this, and I don't know what, like I can get overwhelmed by that a little bit. And so it was like, oh, what am I currently enjoying listening to? Okay, there we go. That one is quite simple. I know the boundaries. I know what month it is and what year it is. So it's very clearly defined where this song goes. Yeah, yeah. Love it. I'm I'm writing that down. (laughs) Um, Okay, so when you're working with clients, what modalities do you draw upon? Like what's, what's in your tool bag? Yeah. And I, I've got the answer. That's like such a self-conscious one as a therapist, like I'm eclectic. (laughs) (laughs) Other therapists are like, pick a lane. Um, But I think I'm right there with you. (laughs) I think like underneath it all would be like a foundation of 
um, I'm an existential therapist. Like existentialism was my favorite branch of philosophy that I learned about. And Makes don't ask sense. me questions about names and primary resources because I've, I've forgotten everything from college. But I remember the concepts and <laughs> you know the beliefs um, underneath it. And so, yeah, existentialism I think is there because it's just part of my outlook in life. So how can I not filter everything through the way I make sense of this world and what our role is in it. And I mean, existentialism is never seen as like an uplifting <laughs> philosophy as much. Like it's the, you know, Nietzsche and God is dead and um, everything's meaningless and, you know, can, can sometimes go along with nihilism, even though it's not the same and nihilism isn't actually that bad, but uh, <laughs> it's kind of like the world is suffering. We're thrown into this space and personal responsibility is the focal point. So it's not to negate that there are systems at play that can become oppressive or opportunities or, you know, so there are all these elements, but with existentialism, it's like, okay, but who are you? How do you define yourself? How are you going to create your world within the world that you have been given? And so I kind of am all about bringing it back to the self in that way. And that um, meaning is created, not given. And so how do we, change the way we relate to the world, change the meaning. If there's a certain meaning we're assigning to ourselves or something else, is that serving us or is it not? Is that a meaning that we've just taken on because we think we're supposed to, or have we actually come to that like on our own? So I'm kind of all about like, we're born, we die, life is suffering. What do you want to make of it? <laughs> what are the things that make it difficult to do that? How to work through those obstacles, but that when it comes down to it, like it's up to us to find that peace and that meaning in our life. Yeah. I was going to ask about how you felt about logotherapy, but then you talked about meaning making. So I was yeah. like, there it is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Reading man's search for meaning too, was just like, cause that was beautiful reading that. And it kind of tying back into like my philosophy degree and existentialism. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh look, Oh my gosh. It's like showing up in this clinical way. And you know, that book by Victor Frankl. So amazing um but yeah i just love how it's got that it's just highlighting like there are all these givens in the world and not to say that if a situation were to change it wouldn't enhance things you know so it's not this like self-view that well you should just be this impenetrable force and it doesn't matter what's going on out there like you just got to be happy it's all on you it's like no there is shit that is going to limit <laughs> you know how we get to feel and um how well our life turns out but we still have a part even within the, you know, worst situation. So um, yeah, loved reading that book and realizing like there's a, a path, there's a way this gets used in therapy. That's amazing. So yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah. And with <laughs> a thing with like existential therapy, I've gone to trainings on it too and read books. It's kind of funny. Cause it's like, are there tools? Like it's one of those practices where it's just like, you know, just be human. <laughs> like the therapist right. is a human. And, <laughs> Versus a lot of others, it's like, oh, this is the path forward and try this tactic and whatever. And so that's kind of a, um, a knock, I guess, against existential therapy sometimes is that it becomes more theoretical versus an applied practice. I don't think that has to be true, but like, yeah, it's, you're not going to open up a book on existential therapy and see a roadmap for it. It's just about how to how to dive into the human experience in any way, or just sit and talk about death all session. You know, I guess that could be the tactic. It's like, we're all going to die. How do you feel about that? <laughs> 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 Which people love that. But uh, 
yeah. So existentialism is the like foundation. And then in terms of other theories, like um, ACT, so acceptance and commitment therapy is one that I learned about um, during my practicum in grad school. And then as an intern, I was at a site where that was like the modality used at the whole practice. So that was really great because it um, merges, I think, existentialism with mindfulness with some of the cognitive behavioral stuff because um yeah just it's a good blend of things um so i draw upon that i don't use it in a like formalized way where like if someone were watching my sessions they wouldn't be like that's an act therapist right there um and then another model that i've recently learned about that's kind of connected to the self-compassion is compassion focused therapy cft so Ooh. yeah it's kind of like if you take act and then add self-compassion as a like focal point, not just like, hey, we should all be nicer to ourselves, but it's like a tool. So merging those is kind of what that theory is about. And so it, it really focuses on self-compassion being the entry point and like the foundation for all this other growth that we need. So really liked getting to learn about that one. Um, Compassion-focused therapy. I've never yeah. heard of that before. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't, I mean, it feels like it's pretty recent. I, I did my first bigger training on it maybe like three, four years ago or something and um, really enjoyed it because self-compassion as we'll talk about is this like cool concept and we all hear about it and, you know, and it's like, yeah, practice that. But um, it's cool to see it used as like a true stance of, you know yeah. what I mean? Like the thing that you focus on versus just a thing you sprinkle in. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I'm going to have to look that up as soon as we're done here. Um, so talking about self-compassion, why self-compassion for cynics? Yeah. So like I said, we've all kind of heard about it. Like it's, you know, it's having a moment, right? Self-compassion is of like, okay, we've got to be kinder to ourselves or, talk to yourself like you would a friend, you know, so we're hearing about it and it like seems fine. But I think for a lot of people, we hear the, like, I don't know, like the, what it is, but like, we don't know why really like, okay, cool. But how does that really work? And so it can be easy to write off as like, you know, people that aren't into just like affirmations or like people don't want to do the um, fake it till you make it as much. And so I think for more cynical people, myself included, it's like, if I don't know why I'm doing something, I don't want to do it. And right. I, I think it's great that self-compassion has become a more popular topic, but I think it's not fully understood of like why it's effective and how it gets used. Sometimes it's just like, oh crap, if you feel bad, just like be nice to yourself. Not to say that's not a component of it, but it, it can feel very superficial in that way. And so, so I like kind of exploring it more so that people see that there's like so much depth to it and so much pragmatism to it. It's not just this like warm and fuzzy thing that can turn people yeah. off too. You know, I, I have an aversion to positivity. Like I <laughs> given, you know, left to my own devices, like, please let me be sad and melancholic and despair and think the worst. Like I, that is safe and lovely for me. If someone wants me to be happy, like, well, fuck you. That's not the emotion that I'm having right now. So please don't try and tell me to feel right. good about something. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, for people that maybe think of self-compassion as like just this like 
feel better, love yourself. It can just be like, oh, gross. You know, so I kind of want to speak to those people because I get it. But if it's just this like, you know, be kind to yourself, it just feels flat and uh, inauthentic. And so I guess my desire is like exploring it so that it becomes this authentic um, thing that makes sense versus just apply this tool because, you know, people say it's good for you. Yeah, yeah. So I have a kind of a two-part question here to play off of that too. Uh, the first one is, what is self-compassion? And the second one is, how is it different from like toxic positivity, for example? Yeah, well, so self-compassion, I'm like read the definition written by Christopher Germer, I think has this one. And he's part of that CFT movement. He's got a really great book on it too, that would be great for therapists who are wanting to learn more about it. And also for clients, it's like, he's got a book that I recommend to every client because it, it makes sense of it and gives tools it gets great. But um, so it's self-compassion is defined as a basic kindness with a deep awareness of the suffering of oneself and of other living things coupled with the wish and effort to relieve it. So there's this like movement part to self-compassion that sometimes isn't seen. Like initially we're just like, oh, it's being nice to ourselves. But it's like, oh no, there's, there's a desire to be well, not just mm -hmm. an element of be nice. So that's, it's really an important part because um, self-compassion says you deserve to be okay. You deserve goodness. You deserve love, whether you think you do or not don't care because you deserve it. Um, so, and that can be hard for people to want to mm -hmm. buy into a little bit and could talk more about like some of that resistance we have to receiving love. It, it sounds great in theory, right? We're like, yes, I want to be loved. And then we receive it and we're like, okay, oh, uh, no, this is not, mm -mm, I do not that feel feels weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, that's kind of how it's defined. And I like to, this is not an official definition, but I like to say you can't hate yourself into happiness. You know, if it, if you could, it would have worked by now, <laughs> right? Like, like yeah, people that show up that are like really hard on themselves. It's, um, it's kind of like, okay. And how's that been going? You know, they, they stay really attached to that inner critic, um, because they think it's the one moving them forward in life. And it's like, well, shit, I wonder how long it needs before it kicks in, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, we keep thinking like, well, no, if I'm nice to myself, that's going to get in the way of things when really it's like, mm, could, you could be getting in your own way, but uh, yeah. yeah, it can be hard to challenge that viewpoint initially. And then with self-compassion, um, Kristen Neff, she's like a big name in that field um, that a lot of people turn to. And like, if you Google self-compassion, you'll see a lot of stuff from Kristen Neff and her research. So kind of heard the three elements of self-compassion for her are about mindfulness so you know paying attention on purpose with non-judgment kind of accepting thing as things as they are um self-kindness and then common humanity which just means recognizing we are all one my suffering is your suffering even if it looks different we all know what it feels like to be alone we all know what it feels like to be scared we all know what it feels like to be hopeless maybe it shows up in different ways you know but like in any given moment I can be sitting in like the depths of my sorrow and feel so alone in this world, but also know, wow, like this is what a human does. This is what a human feels. And so I am so connected to everyone, despite feeling like I'm connected to no one. 
So mm-hmm. those are the, the three parts. Like when people learn about kind of how to apply self-compassion, it's taking those angles of being mindful, being kind to yourself and recognizing common humanity. So that's the, the Kristen Neff kind of summary of that. Okay. And then, and I know this is like such a big answer. I'm like, what's self-compassion? But the CFT model, which is where a lot of, you know, what I'm going to share like stems from, um, it's the theory kind of talks about these brain circles we have. I'm so bad at brain stuff and neurobiology. So I don't know any of the science of it, but I know the concept of it. And so I go off of that, (laughs) but basically that we all, we have our threat system, we have our drive system and we have our soothing system. So the threat system, right? It's like protection, safety seeking. Um, it activates us to protect ourselves, or it inhibits us, right? I need to shut down to stay safe. So that's all the stuff we do to stay safe in the world. Um, and then the drive is the go get it resource seeking, um, you know, mating food, all, all of the stuff, right. That's like movement towards, and then the soothing that's where contentment happens. That's peace. That's, non-seeking that's relationally focused um and you know safeness kindness so that's we've got these three systems and they're all super important but what happens for a lot of people is we've got some of those systems that are like way out of whack right like some person may be walking around and they're like my threat system is phenomenal takes up 90 percent of my headspace and that's how i live my life (laughs) you know and that's when they come to therapy, right? Because right. <laughs> they're just like, I'm anxious about everything or, you know, I can't feel at ease. Um, so, or someone whose drive system is too much, right? And they're just neglecting so many parts of themselves because it's like, no, keep achieving, keep doing, keep moving. So I don't have to sit with everything else that's uncomfortable. So CFT kind of says, no, we need all these. Like, it's not like, oh, self-compassion, just so we can be these soft, fuzzy creatures and everything's fine. It's like, no, you better still be able to react to threat. <laughs> you better right. still have some drive, but the problem is they're out of balance. And so focusing on self-compassion is a way to bring those into balance so that you can utilize what you need in the most appropriate moment. Because if we always rely on one of those systems for every situation, it's like, well, that's, that is like, it's not what you need. It's just what you know. So that's what I really like as an explanation of like why it's good for us <laughs> to have self-compassion is like, you no, know, our brain is wired for it to help keep things in balance. And it actually does help protect us. It helps us get things because mm-hmm. we are reset. We have a feeling of safety because all therapy models are trying to figure out how do we help you feel safe so that you can blank, you know, grow on this, work on whatever. So no matter what type of therapy approach someone takes safety is the foundation of it. And so with CFT, it kind of looks at self-compassion being that, that entry point, that way to establish safety. So that's what resonates with me. It's like, oh yeah, duh. It's not about be nice to yourself because people should be nice to themselves. It's like, no, be nice to yourself so you can be stronger. <laughs> like I want my brain to be as effective as possible for me. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to just keep ignoring a part of my brain that really would benefit me if it could come online a lot more. I like that, a way to practice safety. Yes. I never thought about that before, but it's very true. Yeah, I love you reflecting it back in that way because even I can forget that at times where it's like, no, it's about gentleness, it's about being kind to yourself. And it's like, yes, it is because we need to feel safe. Like we all mm-hmm. desperately need to feel safe. 
in this world. And so yeah, this is a way to do it. It's not just gentleness and kindness because those are pure concepts. You know, <laughs> it's just like, right. no, safety. That's what we need. And so, yeah, get other, other models have ways to get it. And this is just the one that like made total sense for me. Mm-hmm. And, and very different, you know, in that explanation, very different from toxic positivity. Yes. Yes. Because with that, where did I, uh, there's, I'm going through paper. Yes. Because the toxic positivity thing comes up so much, especially for cynical people, you know, mm-hmm. um, because there's this idea that self-compassion is um, almost like just a paintbrush of like, and you've only got one color (laughs) with it. And it's like, and you're awesome. I love you. You're great. And it's like, no, self-compassion has discernment. It is not, it's not this like pull string toy that just tells you you're awesome. Keep it up. Like self-compassion means that you're taking responsibility. You're accurately assessing a situation and you happen to know you deserve love at the same time. But it's, it's not just, you're great, don't worry about it, because that's avoidance. That's right. not personal responsibility. Like, compassion's not here to lie to you. It's here to see you fully, understand your pain. And, you know, so it's going to tell you what you need to do differently. It's not just going to tell you, like, all the, the stuff you want to hear. Because, honestly, we don't want to hear that. If I do something shitty... And someone's like, you're perfect. I'd be like, no, I'm not. Like, you're making me more mad by trying right, to yeah. tell me this stuff because I, I know that wasn't good. So when, you know, self-compassion isn't just meet every emotion or thing that you do with a flood of rainbows and positivity in that way. It's, it's, it's balanced. Yeah, exactly. It's got that discernment and it's, it's a way to be discerning without the self-loathing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. it'll still tell you important things. It's just saying, Hey, but we don't have to hate ourselves for this while learning what we need to learn. Right. Right. So we aren't born being hard on ourselves and putting ourselves down. What are some common origins or what are some common origins of a lack of, or otherwise struggle with self-compassion? Well, so my answer is going to be just based on, what I think (laughs) I haven't read something Mm -hmm. where it's like, Oh, here's the confirmed source of it. But, um, so, but I agree. We aren't born to put ourselves down, but we are born to survive. Mm -hmm. And so if any point along the way, not feeling good about ourselves or not, um, trusting ourselves, you know, any of the, that inadequacy stuff, if that becomes, um, a way to cope, then it becomes a part of our survival. And so it gets stronger and stronger. So maybe, um, you know, if it's modeled, say you've got parents where like literally everyone is just mean to themselves and mean to each other. It's like, that makes sense. It's the language you're going to develop, you know, pretty straightforward. So um, yeah, you weren't born that way, but how can you not pick it up if you're exposed to it? Or maybe if someone like in a family dynamic, um, their role was the, the failure, you know, maybe there's other people that got to be the good one and this is the scary one, but I'm the bad one. Then that's just, that's the role you understand. And so it's the role you have to keep playing out in life so that the world still makes sense to you, even though it doesn't feel good. No one wants to feel that way, but we do want to maintain systems that make sense to us. And so if that's the way it makes sense for you to be in this world is to be not good enough, 
then you have to be hard on yourself. You have to not like yourself. You know what I mean? Because to not do it would fuck everything up. So I think that's how these things get ingrained. And then they just maintain themselves because the brain cares way more about um, sticking to what it knows than trying to challenge that. So, and then I think too, just like society now, we have way more opportunities to compare ourselves and measure ourselves against so many things that wouldn't be relevant at other times. Like, you know, we think of so many generations back, like you don't, you don't have social media, like you know who is around you. That's literally all you see. And y'all are all probably doing the same things each day and dressing the same way. Like it all looks so similar. And so you don't even have to check in with yourself as much of like, am I doing the right thing? Do I fit in? But now there's just a million ways to look at the world and be like, oh crap, well, where do I fit with that? Even if it's something we don't care about. Like I can uh, be watching something. It was a like the Bo Burnham special. He's another comedian and had the most brilliant. Uh, I've seen that. It's awesome. So good. Uh, 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 profound. Love it. But it's like, you know, he's brilliant. And I look it up and it's like, oh, he's 30 years old. So even something as small as that, I'm like, okay, I'm 35. He has created movies, created special. Like you see someone younger than you and you're like, well, they're doing life better. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, so like just even in that moment, a part of me has developed where it's like, you're not as good as you should be. And it's like, what the fuck? Why? Why? You know, but there's just all this stuff that we can observe to compare ourselves against that we would never organically be using that as a measurement tool for our worth. You know? So I, I think now it, it's harder because there's just too much exposure to stuff that doesn't serve us. Social media. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. We're just, we have access to too many different people, too many things to like the, yeah. So we see too much. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I just I just strongly believe we really can't compare ourselves to other people. I mean, it's you're a completely different person, completely different circumstances, you know. To me, it's not a it's never a like level playing field to make a comparison, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. And yeah, it's it's literally comparing one thing, the outcome. It's not comparing the context. It's not looking at anything else, all these other variables. It's just like, yeah, but where they end up? It's like, okay, well, that is missing a lot of the picture. Yeah. 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 And I think too, like why it's so ingrained in us or why it stays stuck is because like we're never trying to hurt ourselves. So for people that are really hard on themselves and know they have a strong inner critic, like it feels bad. They'll come in and say like, I don't want to be this way. You know, people aren't like, I love it. It's so fun. It's the fav- my favorite part of my inner dialogue, right? They don't like it, but um, you know, these things we're doing, we're never trying to hurt ourselves. We're, we're always trying to save ourselves. So the inner critic shows up in hopes of saving us, even when it doesn't feel good. And so we, we're going to rely on that if the alternate seems even scarier. So say like, you know, someone just instinctively thinks they're a failure. All the, like that's just that quickest place they go to. You know, they know that that feels bad to think that, but maybe the alternate of, wow, a lot of life is outside of our control. <laughs> There's a lot of disappointment that just happens that you literally can't play a part in. Like that's a very unsettling truth in this world, right? The helplessness. Yeah. And so that can be a really heavy thing 
to want to accept and make space for. And so if we're resistant to accepting some truth about the world, it's going to be safer for us to instead focus on so much personal like accountability that we have to fixate on every little thing that we do. And so like mm-hmm. life becomes a pass fail system and we are, we are either good or bad. And so even though it seems counterintuitive and like, oh, but I don't want to be that way. It's like, well, but what about accepting that you're not in control? That probably feels scary too. So why wouldn't you cling to the critical voice right. in your head? Cause it's protecting you from something that would feel very destabilizing. Which is interesting, you know, because I feel like, you know, especially the like self-loathing inner critic is a result of a breach of emotional safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, and so funny because it's like the inner critic becomes safety. It becomes the skewed right, version right. of safety and self-compassion starts feeling like the enemy because it's so unfamiliar. Right. And, you know, my understanding is that through practice, of course, we can rewire our neural pathways mm-hmm. to think differently. Yeah. Yeah, we can. And it's hard work. It <laughs> too. Is. And, that, and that's the thing, too. Like, people have to recognize that it's not supposed to be easy. If it was, we'd be doing it all right now, <laughs> you know. So, well, the way that I put it is like you, you've been talking to yourself like this for how many years? Mm-hmm. It's not going to be an immediate solution to fix that. You know, yeah. you've got to unbrainwash yourself in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the brain is wired for efficiency, right? It does mm-hmm. not care about your happiness. And so if we keep relying on our brain to direct us to our peace, to our happiness, it's not going to work unless you just got super lucky and like your brain is just working great. Your family's great. You have enough resources to feel safe in this world. Like, so unless you just lucked out for the most part, your brain is not going to be like designing some pathway to ultimate fulfillment in this world. So we we have to be the intervention. We have to be the roadblock to say, Ooh, there's that groove in my brain. That's like, that's a really nice one to go down. I can get there real fast and be like, ooh, okay, that, that is a way to be really efficient, but I don't think that's what serves us. And so it's tough having to get in our brain's way, you know, because mm-hmm. it's just like, mm-hmm. it doesn't like it. It doesn't want us to do that. So, it, you know, it's a, it's a long game for sure. Being like, okay, even though it feels uncomfortable, I need to go the more difficult path because yeah, left to our own devices, the brain's just going to do what it knows to do. It doesn't care how it makes you feel. Yeah. What are some myths or otherwise unhelpful viewpoints that you've seen around the idea of self-compassion? Um, I think a big one is like people thinking if I'm always kind to myself or I, you know, I show this unconditional love, how will I hold myself accountable for mistakes? So kind of going back to what I said before that like self-compassion has discernment. I think people's fear is that it's, it's like a get out of jail free card. And so then they're just going to be so at peace with themselves that there's no like checks and balances going on. Um, And so that's not the case at all. Self-compassion is going to tell you like what's really going on. And if something if you didn't do something well, it wants to explore 
hey, what made it difficult to do that well? Or what's going on here? And how can we change that? How can we do that better? Like it's going to call you out on the stuff, but it does it from that angle of, I want you to be well, what needs to happen? How can I support that? Um, With a lot of people, we focus on like, what are phrases? solutions first and self-acceptance second, you know, it's like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Yeah. I love myself. I get it. But like, okay, we got to fix it. Like this isn't okay. So I need to let myself know how this is not okay. And then I will earn my acceptance through the lesson that I've learned. And so self-compassion flips it where it says self-acceptance comes first, solutions come second. And because that's how it has to be. Again, a safe brain is a more effective brain a scared brain or, you know, or if it's like being like beat up on, like, it's just not going to come up with good answers. Like, that's just a matter of fact thing. You know, it's not, it's not about like, no, love yourself. And it's just like, you're just going to be shitty at arriving at good answers when you're in this really imbalanced, dysregulated place. So this self-compassion idea, it knows like, Hey, you need to feel safe and okay before you can even use all these magnificent rational powers that you have as this evolved human being. It'd be like if someone is like drowning, right? You see them out there in the water drowning. Like our instinct would be to help them or get a resource to help them. You know what I mean? It's like, you're like, oh my God, someone is suffering and struggling. I want to save them, right? You don't stand there and like ask them like, well, how'd you get out there? And if they're like, I swam too far, you're like, well, it was your own fucking fault. So... (laughs) You know, it's like, you don't make that a teachable moment. Like right, how, yeah, how does that yeah. work? Right. But yeah, afterwards when they're rescued, it is totally fair to have some conversations of like, Hey, what happened there? Like, what's going on? Like, do we need to change something up here? Like, what made you think that was a good idea? What? So all of those conversations still get to happen. You still get to have that accountability piece, but it's that understanding that like, if we're drowning or if we're in pain, like we deserve to be saved. We, we don't make someone earn the rescue, right? We, right. we just yeah. know they deserve it. And then we can grow once, once they're back to safety. So yeah, that's, I think people's fear is like, I'm nice to myself. I just, well, then I can get away with stuff. It's like, no, no, no. But you just need to be nice to yourself so you can actually not keep doing a thing <laughs> that isn't. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay. Why are some people resistant to the idea of self-compassion and kind of going along with what we just talked about? What unhelpful beliefs do people have around the idea of self-compassion that continues to perpetuate people being so hard on themselves? Yeah. So another, there's like so much of this where it's like, oh, so many ideas. And it's like a (laughs) web web in my mind of like how it all connects. But um, similar to kind of what I just talked about of that accountability for mistakes, people can say, well, I only like, I only make changes when I'm hard on myself. If I'm not hard on myself, then I won't keep growing. And like you said, I mean, the inner critic, like if it's been in the brain for all those years, like, of course, you're going to think that's the only way that something works. Um, But the, the inner critic voice, what we think, like, how do I say this? If we're like, well, I was hard on myself and I did the thing. It's like, that's not growth. Like if you can only listen to your inner voice, that's obedience, not growth. <laughs> There's a big difference there. Like if a drill sergeant is yelling at you to do push-ups, like 
I believe you, you will do push-ups more like that makes sense, you know, but then if they stop yelling at you and then you stop doing push-ups, then you're like, well, what's wrong with me? Why am I not motivated anymore? It's just like, well, cause someone's not yelling at you. So wouldn't it be nicer to do push-ups cause you've <laughs> decided you value that, or maybe you don't want to do push-ups and you don't like them. So you do a different <laughs> like weight workout, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like there's choice and it's value-based growth. And again, coming from that place of like self-compassion says you deserve good things. If you want to grow in this way, like I believe in you and I know you're worth that. How can I help you problem solve? So it, I think that's a big one is people's fear of like, I'll be stagnant. And mm-hmm. again, it's like, no, self-compassion wants you to keep moving. It's not just this place that you land and then you just like take a nap for the rest of your life. it's like no i like you're you're great you deserve good things what needs to happen to keep moving you forward and and it knows your pain points too so it's like self-compassion sees your pain and says how can we help get that need met in a more helpful way than the way we've been doing it so i think that's a lot is like trying to convince clients like no it you'll keep growing that that one's really really hard. That is a tough one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, um, like I kind of mentioned before too, like some people will think that, um, they don't deserve it or that self-compassion sounds great for other people. They're like, but I know who I am. Like I know my inner workings. And if someone else could like, you know, peel back the layers, they'd see like, I am shitty, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, so people have this deep sense of being flawed and being uniquely flawed in this world. And that terminal uniqueness. Yeah. I love that. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, we feel like, sure. I know how to be a good person. There are good parts of me, but my core is very bad and tainted. And so that is the part that doesn't deserve it. But it's like, the good news is we're all bad. Basically, you know, like we all have like bad thoughts about ourselves, about other people. We have weird thoughts. There's darkness in us. There's strange things. There's unjust thoughts that we have. We're mean. We're, you know, like all of this stuff is within every single one of us. And so remembering that like your strangeness, your darkness is connecting you to the human experience. Like that is part of the human condition. It's like there, it's like rule 34 on the internet or something. Like if you can think it, it's out there in a porn or something. It's like if a thought or feeling can come up within you, it's because it is there to be thought or felt, (laughs) you know, like the fact that you can even do that shows that it is what people are able to think and feel. And so remembering that versus like, Oh, what the fuck is wrong with me? Something just, Oh, there's some stuff going on inside me. It's like, yeah, you wouldn't be able to have that unless other people could have something similar. So Mm -hmm. really trying to like normalize that shame people feel that it's like, no, you're, you're one of us. We're all in it together. You know, we're all these wretched, wonderful people at the same time. (laughs) No one's as pure as we think they are. Yeah. Which I think, you know, that also helps with like connectedness instead of feeling like alone in that experience. Yeah. That, that common humanity piece again, because there's the remembering like my suffering is connected to everyone else's suffering, but also like my darkness <laughs> is other people's darkness. My, you know, all these, these things that were just like, Ooh, I don't want to look at you. Like that scares me that that's within me. 
like everyone has that experience with themselves. And maybe it's about different things, but like the underlying experience is shared among every single person. Mm-hmm. Totally agreed. Good points, Kelly. Thank you. So can a lack of self-compassion impact our relationships with other people? And if so, in what ways do you commonly see that happen? Yeah, I mean, totally right. Anything, our relationship with ourselves impacts everything in this world. So, you know, be it self-compassion, whatever it is, like there's going to be some effects, um, which there's no getting around that, right? We're supposed to affect people, be affected by people, all that stuff. But it, I think it can just depend on um, what a lack of self-compassion looks like for certain people. Cause some have a strong inner critic and um, that makes them equally critical of other people too. Right. Cause they can be like, I judge myself harshly and that creates a very high standard. And when I see other people not meeting it, I need to judge them to um, justify why I hate myself. <laughs> you know, So there can be that shared judgment that happens, which obviously limits connection and, um, or creates a, someone's got to be superior in this moment. So that's going to be problematic. Or the flip side, there are a lot of people that are like, well, I know, you know, I give my friends compassion. I would never judge them as harshly as I judge myself, but like with myself, okay, yeah, I go in on it. But if my friend told me this stuff, I would totally be there for them. So they, there's that like inconsistency. Um, but if someone continues to see themselves as the only one who deserves negativity and that everyone else is deserving and therefore better people. It's almost like a power imbalance. I don't know how to start, mm-hmm. but it, mm-hmm. it becomes a disconnect because now you've got someone who is worth more than you in a relationship. And not that that has like immediate tangible results, but like that's this insidious thing going on where you're always like lower. It creates an unhealthy dynamic. Yeah. So it's, you're not getting to have relationships from this equal place and you, it's hard to be present in a relationship if you are preoccupied with self-judgment or, and even if you're not being hard on yourself in that moment, but if your brain is so like focused on how do I, where do I measure up or am I flawed or was that stupid? Whatever I just said. And what do they think of me now? Like that's just a lot of mental activity going on to constantly be trying to ask yourself, am I okay? Am I being good enough to be okay? Then you're not as present as you'd be with Yeah. And, and just very self-focused. Mm-hmm. And then which I mean, can also create issues. <laughs> I love, yes, it is. It is such a self-focus. That's what uh, I think people, it's hard for them to hear that they are controlling a lot of times whenever they're anxious and they're like, I'm not controlling, like I'm a people pleaser. I'm this, I'm so accommodating. And it's like, that doesn't mean there's not control. Like that, that <laughs> those all have like all you, those, those things you just named have an element of control. Exactly. <laughs> you are so uneasy inside that you have to fixate on every part of your environment or another person. So it can be just so, so that you can be okay. So that, cause people see controlling as this very like, Oh, it's forceful. It's negative. It's harsh. You know? And it's like, no, it's focused. <laughs> it's very, you know, self-referential of like, who do they need to be so that I get to feel okay about myself? How, you know, if I walk into this room, how does it need to be so I can feel okay about myself? Like there's just this constant need to affect and control our environment, which includes the people around us in order to be at ease. And that's a lot of work. 
<laughs> well, and that goes back to the idea of safety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because if I can control everything and it be just the way that I need it, then I feel safe. Yes. Yeah. And with self-compassion, it's like, even if something goes wrong, even if there's a difficult problem or a difficult feeling that can't be solved, I'm here with you anyways. Like that's, that's the thing too, is self-compassion is not an answer to life's problems. It's not this thing that you're like, okay, I will call upon you self-compassion and you will make it all better. Correct. And it's like, I mean, I'll be there for you. Like, <laughs> so it's not promising that it makes everything better. So if people get frustrated, they're like, well, I was, I was nice to myself or I'm like practicing it, but like, I still have difficult feelings and whatever. It's like, okay, yeah, that's, that's human. That's normal. But a lot of self-compassion is about not abandoning yourself in moments of distress. And that part feels so important to me because it's hard. I think you said it before a little bit with some like the critic and like a betrayal element, but it's, it's hard to ever feel okay if we think when something negative is going on, we don't deserve a companion to sit by our side. And like, if uh, I like kind of thinking of um, a kid having a nightmare or something. And like, if, a, you know, they're crying out, a parent comes in and the kid's like, Oh, there's a monster under my bed. Right. A, a good parent, right. They'll look under the bed and be like, okay, everything's fine. See, there's no monster here. You're okay. And then if the kid keeps crying and they're like, no, no, I swear they're there. The, the critical parent, the discompassionate one says, I showed you it's not there. Why are you still crying? Go to bed. The kid may stop crying, but because they're like, oh God, I get, you know what I mean? I'm going to get in trouble. But the compassionate parent says, or maybe don't vocalize it, but it's like, I understand that the evidence I just showed you hasn't helped fix this fear, but it's okay that you're still in this fear. And I'm going to sit with you as long as you need to let this pass. Because it's like, how much better does that kid feel that even though they can't make sense of why they're still scared, they can't turn it off immediately, even though, you know, we've got rational evidence, we got data that says everything's okay. Sometimes it's hard to feel okay, even if we know things are okay. And, but they've got this parent who's just not scared of their overwhelm. And I think so many of us get scared when we're overwhelmed or when we have something painful come up, we're so scared of ourselves that we want to run away as fast as possible. So then we bring the, the critical voice in, or, you know, we focus on something else. And so self-compassion is like, no, I sit with you and I'm sorry, we can't take this away, but it's okay. Cause it doesn't need to be taken away. Cause we can still be safe amidst this discomfort. Yeah, totally. Going back to the monster thing. My mom's response was she made a monster spray and uh-huh. put it in a spray bottle. And so she would spray that before bed that way. Yeah. That wasn't an issue. That's, that's <laughs> cute. I love that. <laughs> it was just like water and like some like essential oils or yeah. something. I think that just made it smell good, you know? Mm-hmm. And me and my sister were all about it. We couldn't go to bed without it. Like yeah. it was, that was one of the, one of the more, um, like, uh, like fun parenting things. I think my my parents responded with. Yeah, that's such a, a sweetness too with that. Yeah. Um. So, a lot of the the whole idea of like our inner critic, negative self talk, all of that stuff. 
to me really ties back into the CBT concept of like negative core beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. So how are, how are those tied? Like, you know, how is our inner critic and the way we talk to ourselves tied to what we really believe about ourselves? I think that uh, they're so connected and it kind of goes back to that point of like um, sustaining the system of like, if there's a negative core belief of like, I'm not good enough. What the brain does, any belief, we're going to cling on to it because like, "Hmm, this helps make sense of things. And we don't care if it feels good or not. We're like, all right, the, the world has been properly organized in my mind. So I need to cling to this so that the world continues to make sense. And so we only seek out evidence that helps confirm that, right? So once we've got some negative belief in there, I think that self-compassion becomes difficult because it is, again, trying to tell the brain, no, this isn't how the world works. And so we're just like, well, this is the scariest thing you could tell me. You know, It's like if someone went up to you and was just like, hey, two plus two equals five, deal with it. You'd be like, I, no, this is not the math I learned, <laughs> you know? And so you'd start, you know, either getting angry about that or whatever, but like you would resist it because you're just like, this is not how it works. But then it's kind of checking in of like, oh, what if they actually said 2.5 plus 2.5 equals five, but you never learned decimals in school. And so you've just drowned out <laughs> half of what they told you, but you're so convinced that you're right, you know? <laughs> and it's like, well, then there's some exploring there, like that we all have these filters, these distortions. Um, but we get so, there's such strong conviction we have that we are taking the world in accurately. And so I think people need to like pause and question that of like, maybe we're not as accurate (laughs) with it, you know, maybe there's some filters in place. And so this, this negative belief is actually forcing a narrative. It's not being reinforced (laughs) by the world. I'm seeking out things to continue to confirm it. And so self-compassion helps counteract it, but it requires that big leap of faith of you've got to start questioning stuff. Maybe these truths aren't truths. Maybe you are, you're, you're keeping these going. Maybe you want to keep believing this and not in a judgy, shameful way. Like you want to feel like shit, but it's like your brain wants this, you know? Mm -hmm. So not, not buying into much of the, the strong feelings we have of like, but I really believe it about myself. So it must be true. Like I, I think people think I wouldn't feel this intensely about it unless there was some wisdom behind it. And it's like, Oh, intensity is not equal to wisdom right? at all <laughs> with a feeling, you know, that intensity could be because of a fear, not because of some deep wise voice. It's like, you're not enough. Like it doesn't know shit. Right. <laughs> like, right it's this learned thing. That's this belief that's carrying us and, you know, that we, we keep holding on to. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think they tie in well together and it explains why it is so hard to want to challenge it. Cause again, it's super stabilizing and we think we're looking at good data, but we're not, <laughs> it's pretty skewed. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you've given us some ideas of what this is like, but just to ask a, a cohesive question about it, what is your approach to helping somebody heal the relationship they have with themselves? And how do you work through some of that potential initial resistance and I mean, potentially ongoing resistance? It's, it's such hard work too. Cause it's not just like, Oh, do this one thing. You know, it's this, it's this constant renegotiation with yourself. It's 
it's like if you're dating someone, it's like you are in the thick of relationship building the whole time when you're with each other, when you're not, you know, like it's, there's a lot that's being learned. And so it does take that amount of effort of like, you've got to be relating to yourself in new ways pretty frequently. So it takes a lot of awareness. I think helping people call themselves out when they're engaging in something to even just name like, oh, that's my critical voice. Like, cause stuff needs to be named to be seen clearly or else it just becomes a, like a mess of things in our head, right? We bounce around to so many different thoughts and feelings. And so being aware enough to say what we're doing when we're doing it, even if that doesn't mean we change it, but I think that's a really important piece starting out is knowing like, oh, there is a critical voice and giving it that name, not like, oh, that's my wisdom or that's me talking to myself. It's like, no, that's a voice you've learned. It functions for some reason, you know? So, and in therapy, there's a lot of me trying to educate kind of like stuff we've shared of what's actually going on, what self-compassion is really about, what the inner critic's trying to do. And like on an individual basis, helping someone explore the origin of theirs. Cause we, we can, a lot of us can share the same habit, right? Me and you might be hard on ourselves, but it could be coming from a very different place. We're trying to get right. different needs met. So as an individual exploring like, Oh, what's your origin story for that inner critic? What needs are trying to be met there. You know, what is, what did safety used to seem like? What's it trying to do for you? And so really having a lot of like curiosity around the critical self and um, appreciation as well, because nothing likes to just be shunned, right? Like right. If, if we're just like, okay, I gotta stop being hard on myself. It's like, oh, but also like, thank it for service. Like it's been so awesome for you. <laughs> like it has shown up and taken care of you in so many ways, right? And so it's, it's there trying to help you. Now you realize, oh, I don't think I need your help anymore, but we can see it as this, this helpful part that's been trying to show up and protect us. And so being sure to not judge the part of you that judges yourself because <laughs> that becomes its own spiral. It's just like, yep. oh, well, yeah. I, like, I know I shouldn't be hard on myself, but I keep doing it. It's like, what? it's just like, Hey, that's okay. Like, <laughs> like we don't, we don't have to hate ourselves because it's hard to not hate ourselves. Like, right. <laughs> <you know? laughs> like be cool. Be cool. You're fine. You're trying your best, you know? So um, yeah. Having that openness to that inner critic, like, I appreciate you. I get that you're trying to protect me. That way you don't have to be disappointed every time it shows up because it'll keep showing up. I mean, it doesn't need to die off. We need to have a level of, um, I don't know, true awareness of like when things are off. So guilt is a very important feeling, you know, right. like, so we still need to have some of that stuff, but just being really clear of like, oh, you're showing up right now. Huh? Okay. What do you need for me? Versus like, oh, you're showing up right now. Cool. How do I make you go away? So mm -hmm. helping clients see that they're, to stop having the battle in their head, you know, and that, cause we can't control what pops into our brain at any point. So we had to decide like, how can I be more gentle with all these things that are showing up? So trying to encourage that, like curiosity, the appreciation for the critic, but then letting it know, Hmm, there could be an alternate way. Let's explore, you know, some other way to handle ourselves in this moment. Um, and like, inner child work I think be mm -hmm. an important part. Um, I was wondering if you're going to mention yeah. that. Yeah. So kind of going back and looking at like, what, what are you needing protection from? And that doesn't have to mean something horribly traumatic happened. I think it can be easy sometimes for people to be like, my life was fine. <laughs> like I didn't need, like everything's fine. 
I'm just fucked up. Like that's what they assume. And it's like, no, everything could have totally been fine. You don't have to have horrible parents or, you know, like this isn't something like that. And so, but there's still some part of you that needed support and wasn't able to get it in the way you felt you most needed it at that time. Maybe your parents, like for me, like I said at the beginning, like I was validated by my parents. Like I, I had so much unconditional love, you know, but I didn't feel a sense of resonance. I felt loved, but not seen. And so that's its own pain. And not, my parents did not fail me in any way with that. You know, it was just the nature of like, I am built in a way they are built in a way. And something about that doesn't click fully. So that part of feeling unseen, you know, that could be my core pain. So for other people kind of looking at what, what were some of those feelings that were really hard or that you felt abandoned, which again, doesn't have to be physical abandonment, you know, but like, where did you feel alone and like you needed something to take care of you? And so going back to that and exploring what are the scared parts of you? What are the hurt parts? You know, where are those vulnerabilities? Because that also lets you know what your trigger is too. So we're going to rely on, you know, some of our dysfunctional coping mechanisms like pretty quickly whenever someone triggers blank. You know, for you, it could be something that I'm like, no, that wouldn't trigger me at all. Like, no, I'm pretty stable and fine, right? For you, you're like, this is the end of the world and all hands on deck and I got to protect myself, you know? So I think when people realize what parts of themselves are hurt or lonely or whatever, then it gives them a, an ability to, to just act more mindfully, honestly, to be able to call out like, oh, that's what happened. That's the part of me that just got messed with. That's the part that needs a lot of support right now. And a lot of us don't want to own that too. Like we don't want to be weak or we're like, I'm an adult, get over it. Like quit feeling rejected because this person didn't invite you to a thing. It's totally fine. And it's like, well, that's fair, but sounds like you felt rejected. And it's that, you know what I mean? So you can't run from it. You shouldn't shame yourself for it. What you need is someone to come in this more, you know, compassionate version of yourself to come in and say, God, that sucks. Like that really hurts when we don't feel wanted in that way. I know you're, you're great. You're worthy of that. This doesn't mean you're not accepting the world, but like, I get it. That really is hard. You know, so there's that validation element, but a lot of people don't want to validate their pain because they think they should be over it. They think it's stupid. They think it's childish, but it's like, well, it showed up. So it needs to be tended to. It's kind of like you can not tend to it. And then you'll just keep playing out some pattern that doesn't serve you. Or right. you can be vulnerable enough to realize it is hard to be a human. It, there's a lot of scary feelings, no matter how old we are. We feel vulnerable. We feel weak a lot of times. And so we do need something to come in and sit with us and say, like, we'll get through this. We're okay. And to help feel that safety, to help neutralize so that then we can be rational and realize, oh, it is okay. They are still my friend. You know, that's when all those thoughts those rational thoughts actually help us is because we validated our pain. But a lot of people want to bypass that and say, I'm a rational being. I'm an adult. I shouldn't need to validate this dumb feeling. It's like, Nope, you better validate it. <laughs> Cause well, I mean, then, yeah, well then that, that, that turns into the feeling bad for feeling bad spiral. Yep. You know, I yep. encounter that so many, t- so many times I encounter that all the time with people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're already feeling bad. Why? Why? You know. <laughs> exactly. It's like you don't need to 
cut off your right arm to punish <laughs> like yourself for cutting off the left arm or so it's like how who are we helping here you're suffering like you yeah. deserve care anyone deserves care when they're in a state of suffering and it is not we shouldn't be relying on this like rational brain to decide what suffering is real or not if we feel it and something hurts it is real that's all the data you need is that it hurts you Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if you should be over it by now or it's like it hurts it deserves care that's just right. got like that's that immediate thing it hurts it's valid period mm -hmm. yep yeah and again all the rational stuff like that gets to happen after but if we keep invalidating ourselves then we keep forcing ourselves to not be feelers also you know that's when we're not working with ourselves at all because that's my big thing it's like how do you operate? All right, work with that part. <laughs> like, if you get easily scared by stuff, tend to that part of it. Don't say, I'm just going to be someone who's not scared. It's like, I don't, good luck with that. Cause I, I don't know how you just switch that over because you didn't yeah. ask to be scared. So, why do you think you can tell yourself to not be scared? Right. So, as a whole, what advice do you have to offer our listeners who struggle with being too hard on themselves? I think for one, normalizing it again, like, I mean, you and I can both relate to being hard on ourselves, right? And like I, I consider myself someone who's pretty good at self-compassion just as an individual. I feel like, Oh, that's a skill. I'm, I'm like really good at that personal relationship. That doesn't mean I'm not still hard on myself. So like also letting there be space for that, not making it such an extreme pass fail situation. Like it has to be eradicated. You know? Yeah. But it's like, this is normal we're all struggling with it in some way. So don't keep assuming it's this like shameful flawed part of you. So kind of remembering, Oh, we're all in this together. And this is just like a hard thing to change. Um, and then I think engaging in that curious dialogue with oneself, which even separate from self-compassion, like that's even just the mindfulness piece too, mm -hmm. is um, just being like, what's going on in this moment? What am I reacting to? Well, you know, so like, I feel like that's just such a necessary step with everything. If you're going to make any change or be compassionate with yourself is you've got to start paying attention and be curious about what's going on versus being um, so certain about things or having quick judgments. You know, it's like letting things unfold. If we think of a scientist, right, they're not, they just, they take in data, they explore, oh, what's the meaning of this? How does it connect to this? Oh, okay, maybe that means this, right? But there's this tone of openness and curiosity versus with ourselves, a lot of times we're like, bad, no, I want this outcome, so I need the data to fit that. Like there's this, right. this like tension, this like grip we have on ourselves. And so just curiosity is a, a big thing, I think of like figuring out how can I incorporate curiosity into my feelings, into my thoughts, so that you get to at least learn something from it. Because when we're not curious, we're not doing anything very helpful for ourselves. You know, then we're just playing out patterns. So I think really trying to focus on how can I be curious in all ways with myself. Um, and then another thing that I think we can, when we have a strong inner critic, a lot of times we just identify with the critical voice like obviously there are two parts going on, right? There's the part that's suffering and feels bad about themselves. And then there's the part that's being like, yeah, you should, God, what's wrong with you? And so even though both are there, it ends up being easier to like 
jump on the back of the inner critic because it feels strong and powerful and effective. It's like, well, that's a productive voice. And so we actually forget how much we are suffering and receiving that critical voice. We think we are because we're like, yeah, no, I feel bad about myself. But we're, I think there's an over-identification with the critic because we think that that's um, the one saving us. And so being able to shift and be like, no, what does it really feel like? hearing that, <laughs> you know, like, wow, this hurts really bad. Cause a lot of times we just intellectually know like, yeah, I know I shouldn't be hard on myself. Yeah, of course it hurts, but we we're still disconnected from the pain that we're inflicting on ourselves. And so I think there can be a lot of power in connecting with your suffering. Even though it seems counterintuitive because it's like, cool. So feel worse. Like, <laughs> but I think change happens when we actually know that we're suffering versus mm -hmm. just know like, yeah, I know it's not good for me. Right. It's like when we, I mean, even thinking of like trolls online or something, right. How people can make comments and say horrible things, right. To people they don't know, they're not seeing them. They can just be like, eh, whatever, I'll type something messed up. But if they were face to face with that person and they said those words and saw how that person reacted and they saw like that pain in their eyes, they would feel horrible. And they'd be like, Oh my God, that's never how I'd want to make them feel, you know? And so sometimes we get disconnected from ourselves where we're just like the online troll and we're like, yeah, it's not the nicest words to say, but like, it's fine. So I think knowing like, God, this hurts can help be its own motivating force to help be like, and I don't want to suffer in that way. Like I don't deserve to suffer so deeply <laughs> by this, this critic. So like helping people kind of check in with themselves of like, who, who do you think you are in this moment? Do you think you're the strong critic that's making changes and holding you accountable and, you know, all that? Because I don't know. I think you're actually this really scared person who feels abandoned, who feels wrong, who feels like they're not allowed to have a feeling. I think that's actually who you are. So just getting in touch with that so that the, you know, level of suffering you realize warrants a change in approach. Yeah, I think sometimes it takes getting to the point of, being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yes, exactly. Well, is there anything that I haven't asked about self-compassion that you feel is important to mention? Um, see, I'm sure there's so much. I don't know. I feel like they've been all over the place. It's like, I don't I think No, you've given a ton of really great info. Okay. Well, yeah, I just, there's probably nothing I haven't mentioned but I guess just distilling it is like, we deserve kindness and, oh, and self-compassion is not a bulldozer. I think that's a thing too, is when clients um, try and practice it. A lot of what I hear is like, yeah, I, I tried it, but I don't believe it. So it doesn't stick. It's like, it's not like self-compassion has no demands on you and it doesn't need your perfection. Like it, it doesn't need to be believed because it is a, sturdy presence that is there. It contains you. It holds you. It's not going to be mad at you for not getting on board. So seeing it not as like this thing that like you give yourself and then it's supposed to work well. And you know, it's just like, nope, I'm there. It's just the steady presence. I'm not leaving you. I, whether you like me or not, I, sorry, you know, <laughs> like I'm just going to be here chilling. And so it, it's about the exposure. So when someone's practicing it, focus more on the exposure to the compassion itself more than the reception of it, because there's always going to be a lag. It's like if you went to 
another country and you're like, well, I, you know, I read some language books and I practice some vocabulary and then you get there and you're not fluent. We wouldn't be like, oh God, well, it's just like, well, of course not. <laughs> like, think you're going to need to keep learning that a bit more, right? But we wouldn't judge ourselves for not learning that language immediately because we get that that doesn't make sense. <laughs> so same with self-compassion. Like, it's not this thing that we're supposed to come in and be like, love yourself, believe it already. It Self-compassion is strong enough to see you not believe it and say, that's okay. I get that it's hard to receive this love or to practice a new way of being. I'm going to still provide it for you. And I'm here when you need me. So I think people remembering to not use it as another tool of like a critic to not let it be this harsh thing. It's very strong. It's very sturdy, but it's not harsh. It's not spiky. You know, it's not plowing through you because that scares us off. If we're trying to be nice to ourselves, and it, again, if it threatens who we've known ourselves to be, we're going to get defensive. And so compassion is this, this gentle, but consistent presence that you keep trying to provide for yourself and letting it kind of do its thing. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not saying, believe me or else I'm done with you. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Lots of good info here. And I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, so switching gears a little bit to you as a therapist, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? I have um, probably the experience of most people who don't specialize in that is that it's not as frequent because, um, I mean, for one, I guess the issues I work with can be more on the like generic scale too, or, you know, um, but I think therapy is, um, for one cost prohibitive. <laughs> so if you've got vulnerable or, um, oppressed populations, that can be a big issue. Um, so I, I have experience with all of the above, but it is not a frequent thing because of like client self-selection. I mean, me being just like a white cis woman, that's probably not what if, if someone like if a person of color is looking for a therapist, it's, I mean, for one, it's unfortunate because they're not going to see a lot of people that look like them in our field, you know, but it's like, I probably, it's not going to feel as, as safe because of even how I present. So yeah, I feel like that's, that's an area where I'm very affirming, open, you know, all of that, but it ends up not being um, as much as the more like, you know, standard population people that get to afford therapy or like all of that. So, so I think it's underrepresented as a population, both in being able to receive treatment and therefore gets underrepresented in my own practice and that of others too. That makes sense. Okay. So a lot of people will have a lot of anxiety uh, around anticipating their initial session. Mm -hmm. um, so what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? So uh, I'm pretty casual, I guess. And um, so I, like with my approach to, I don't have as much of a, a formula. So I guess that'll speak to the ongoing session part, but someone coming in I mean, they'll do their intake ahead of time online, kind of share about what's going on. And so the session will start with just trying to get to know them, you know, on a human level, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it's weird to me 
to have someone come in and just be like, what are your symptoms? What are the goals? Okay. You know, so I don't do this big, like big treatment plan at the first session. It's more, let me get to know you. Okay. What's going on? What are you struggling with? What are you hoping to get from therapy? Um, you know, what stuff have you tried before? How can I be most helpful? Try and explain kind of how I see things, um, you know, my belief about what is helpful, how I approach therapy, that I see things as a very collaborative experience. You know, like I'm not the expert here. I'm just trying to help notice themes and patterns and get at that deeper stuff so that can explore new ways of doing things. Um, And then I'll try and learn about someone's past. Like I'm not a very past focused therapist in terms of like, a fixation on attachment issues or only being in the past. But I think it's important to know, like, where'd you come from? What's going on here? Like, is there anything Mm -hmm. that we can see that could have contributed to these themes in your life that you keep circling around and struggling with, you know, because it's not like people show up in therapy because they're like, Oh, I'm just having a a difficult feeling. It's like, Oh no, I am stuck. I I keep hitting the same wall over and over again. And so I think it's helpful to learn you know, about their past to kind of see like what's built that wall up and what makes it so hard to get around it. So kind of exploring a bit about current self, past self, and then seeing, you know, what are you wanting? And we go from there and then continuing on, it's very client led. So I don't go in with like, today we talk about this. So a client kind of brings stuff in, but then we'll guide it around. Like what is the important thing we're trying to work on? So, or we'll, pick up from, you know, something that was brought up previously that needs to keep being explored. So it can kind of be fluid. Like if, yeah, if someone were watching my sessions, they wouldn't be like, oh, I see that structure all the time or, you know, um, so it it kind of just goes in a way that I think makes most sense for the client. Okay. How would you say your clients describe or experience you? Um, I think they see me as very insightful. I'm very into insight-based therapy. I used to feel ashamed about that because I feel like you go to school and it's like, that's the old school ways, talking, exploring. And now it's all about somatic and embodiment. And it's like, I believe all that stuff too, but I can't help it that I really love understanding things. That unlocks a lot of stuff for me when I know what's going on and why. And so that's that's just where I I lean is trying to pull apart stuff and, you know, really get at it. So Um, I think clients end up seeing that, that there's a lot of insight that happens. Um, I think they experience me as very non-judgmental, which to be fair, I mean, every therapist (laughs) should be, but um, I think, I think that's something they really feel like that clients can feel very at ease very quickly um, because they see me as a real person. I'm very much myself. Like I don't know how to not be myself and that feels gross to me. (laughs) Like I just can't not be. So I think my authenticity comes through and that helps them feel like they get to be the full version of themselves as well. Um, And that, you know, I'm approachable. I I don't imagine many people see me as intimidating at all. Um, That I'm funny. There's a lot of jokes. Like I, you know, probably inappropriate ones at times, but (laughs) definitely laughing a lot. Um, And then also that I'm, I'm pretty honest and can be challenging. So that's the thing I have to pay attention to for myself in session is because I can be so analytical that I almost forget the feelings part (laughs) sometimes. And it's like someone will share something and I'm like, well, I'm going to challenge that thought, (laughs) which, um, so I have to, you know, make sure I'm 
being gentle still with it. So they know that I'm, I still see them, you know? Um, but I think that's something a lot of clients get for me that they can appreciate is that like, I'm going to, um, push back or be kind of matter of fact about things at times. And you are funny. You can validate that. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Yeah, well, definitely. Laughter, a lot. I can't think of any session where there wouldn't be. A, well, okay, to be fair, like, there's heavy sessions where I'm not cracking up, you know? Right. <laughs> like, there, yeah, so much laughter. Because to me, like, I don't know how we don't laugh at the absurdity of who we are. Like, it is, right. it is the most relieving thing for me to... I don't know, just call that out or like, Oh God, being a human ugh, or like, you know, just it, it's ridiculous. Life is so absurd. Um, so I, yeah, I'm always laughing about something or joining a client in their own humor too. Um, and then crying, I will let myself do that in session as well. And I'm not a crier, like on my own, I can cry and whatever, but, um, I'm just not a warm, fuzzy person. I don't think that's how people experience me. I don't think I'm cold, but it's just like, you know, yeah. Uh, so it's not, I'm not easy to cry and there's nothing a mm -hmm. client can do to disturb me. So if I ever cry, it's not like a dysregulated, like, oh gosh, that was heavier. Now I'm like, this is too much for me. Like nothing ends up being too much for me. So it's, it's usually triggered by a client when I'm witnessing them sink like deep into their unworthiness. Gotcha. Because a lot of, I mean, we can see people feeling not good about themselves, but it's like, there'll be those moments where I'm seeing them go there. And it's like, it pains me. Cause I'm like, Oh God, I wish they could see themselves through my eyes, you know, right. and it, just, like, it hurts so bad. And so if I feel emotional about it, like I want to share that not as some tactic or like, stop being mean to yourself. It makes me sad. But because like, Oh my God, like there is so much power and beauty within you. And the fact that you can't see it hurts my heart. And I, I just, I wish you could know this, you know, so it's going to come out really naturally because of how, like how meaningful it is in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's those touching moments. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that, that get me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to hold it back. Like that would feel weirder to me. Right. And even, even if I've, I've teared up at times where I'm just like, Oh God, what the fuck are you doing? Like I've had to check myself with like, <laughs> are you making this about what's happening? But then I realized like, no, they just shared something really awesome or a thing that like, I am so proud of them for that. And I don't even know if they recognize how proud of themselves they should be, you know, just so you can get caught off guard. Like, you know, as a therapist, we're just like, Oh shit, that was moving. And I, okay. Didn't even know that was going to happen, but I feel like it'd be a disservice right. to not let clients know how we experience them. Yes. Totally agree. Totally agree with that. And, and when I say cry, I'm not talking like bawling. I'm talking no. like a straight tear or two, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I've like teared up. It's kind of come down my face. Yeah. We're not like, give me the tissue. Oh God, I need a moment. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, how do you define holding space for someone? I, I love that phrase too, because it's um, such a therapist phrase. Right. So therapist and all, all of us therapists, right. When we're talking to other like non-therapists, just, I love all the words that we have that are so like normal, just like holding space or dysregulated or trigger, or it's just like, isn't that how people talk? Like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I see it as like basically allowing a client to sit with themselves, be it difficult feelings, joy, you know, whatever, but 
for them to safely experience themselves knowing that there's no agenda timeline, there's no expectation, that nothing about that moment needs to change, that I don't need anything from them. And it kind of connects with the self-compassion piece too, because some of how I try and work with self-compassion is modeling that <laughs> as well, you know? And so holding space looks like letting them see, oh, wow, you can be any version of yourself or feel something so intensely that you're kind of freaked out by it and you are okay. And I have no issue with you here. I like, I'm not scared off by you. There's so much space for you to be all of this. And that hopefully that, you know, slowly helps them learn like, oh, I don't have to be scared off by myself either. Like I can feel all of these things and learn that the space is big enough for all of me. I'm not going to explode out of this world and be, you know, so I, it's kind of letting them fully be with themselves um, with no pressure being put upon them. And yeah, again, hopefully they learn like they deserve that and can provide it internally. Good answer. I like that one. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Oh, so many things. And then also so many things where I'm like, you've probably had this client, our clients have probably had it in therapy. If someone were to be like, so how was therapy? What'd you get from it? They're like, no, it was great. And they're like, what did you learn? They're like, I don't know, but I know it was great. You know, they're like struggling to figure out what did I get? What did they ever say? So I feel that with like, that there's been so much that I've learned or received and I'm like, oh, it is shaped me. There's so much good stuff. And I'm like, and what were they? But um, yeah, one, <laughs> one that I think always stands out and that I use with clients myself too, is that idea of process versus content. So that, you know, clinically for therapists, yes, we pay attention to what a client is obviously saying to us, but the important part is to notice what is the process going on underneath it, right? Because that's, that's what's effective. If we just follow along, right, with the story of like, well, this person did this and this did this. Okay, could you try this? It's like, we're, we're ignoring so much of what's going on. And so that is always such a helpful thing for me to remember if I'm getting lost in a session too, or I feel like we're not doing much. It's like, okay, what process is going on here? What's underneath this versus just what are we talking about? So that I think is just like so major. And I love that being a tool for self-help. Even I've told my clients this idea of like how it's a, a thing therapists do, but like when you're with yourself and you're getting caught up in so many thoughts, being able to pause and say, what's going on here? Versus just, what am I thinking about? You know, it's like, oh, I'm spiraling out. What's this doing for me? What's happening? What, you know, so really mm -hmm. trying to figure out what process I'm, am I engaging in? What is the function of this thought versus it just being the thoughts themselves? Yeah, yeah. I like that. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? So much, too. You probably sure feel this, like being a therapist is a hard job. It can be very difficult, but it's like one of those jobs that you're like, I have grown in so many ways. Like, with, I don't even know who I'd be without this job, like developmentally. I mean, I always worked on myself and, you know, all of that, but it's like, you just learn so much from your clients and from the practice of working with clients. Totally. It's just like, it's so profound and amazing. And um, yeah, I think clients probably don't even recognize like how much we're getting just through the experience of knowing them and the privilege of being a witness, <laughs> you know, that they let us in is so powerful. So I mean, I think some of the big things, like we're all more similar than we are different. 
And especially, I mean, that heals my little childhood wound of like, I don't belong here. I'm kind of an alien that doesn't seem like an alien. But then if people really know me, there's something alienistic. What's going, you know, it's like, I just always felt so separate. And I'm like, oh my God, like, no, (laughs) you know, there are parts that are maybe weird, different, but like, we are all going through the same struggle. Like it is so hard to be a person and we're all doing the best we can. And it just, it helps me trust in the connection and that like we are seen in this world. We are known because we just share this condition. So I really love that. And that's the thing I wish we could like implant in our clients. Like, Oh God, I wish you could just be a therapist for a bit here that like, (laughs) like this is all so normal. You're not alone in this. Clients can feel so alone with what they're going through. And so I, I love that we get that, that privilege of being like, Oh shit. I have seen all this pain. I hear all this stuff. Like, Oh, I'm good. Like we're all good, you know? (laughs) So I like that normalization and that connection part. Um, and that knowing like, there's nothing wrong with me. Yes. There are things we struggle with, but like, there's nothing wrong with me and there's nothing wrong with you. And then also maybe this is more like a depressing side, but, um, there's no solution to life. (laughs) I think in therapy, it's, it's great. And I love that people love therapy, right? People are like, oh, totally get therapy. It changed my life, whatever. But therapy also highlights the stuckness of being an individual. You know, like we can put therapy on a pedestal as clients or therapists of like, if someone would just go to therapy, they'd work out all their issues and then they'd be healed and whatever. But it's like, sure, there can be progress. But we also have to remember like, we're stuck in this world and this world has suffering and like there are unchangeable things and there's, we can't just see a problem, solve it and figure out how to make life be great. Like it is this ongoing relationship with the world and with ourself. And that ends up making me feel better a little bit because it, it creates less of a failure feeling too of like, why am I failing at life? It's like, why do you think you're supposed to beat life? You know, so right, yeah up a little bit to be like, oh, there's some inherent struggles here that I'm up against. And and, and also like, what does that even mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like to fail at life? Like, what does that even mean? You know, that's, that's uh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're I so certain about failing. it. Yeah. We're so, we're like, I'm failing, but I love that question of what does it mean? Cause we're like, well, I, I mean, I don't know, but I just know that I am. <laughs> like, I, what, I mean, really yeah. the only failure of life is death. Or the completion of life. I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> but but like life fails when we in that die. technical sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like everything else is just it is what it is, right? Yeah, just part of it. Yeah, yeah. So that that's and then I think one thing too that like because with clients, I feel like so many of them need permission to mm-hmm. do something, you know. And so it's, it's really highlighted for me, like how much we have to be our own permission slip in life. And because no one's looking out for you. And I don't mean that in some, this is a cruel, harsh world. No one cares about you. It's just like, no one can, no one's out there paving the way of like, oh, this is what you most need. And this is the world that will make you the happiest. So go on this path. Like no one's doing that for us. And so it is all up to us to decide, like, what are the choices I'm going to make, you know? And, um, so trying to be like, I am the one that has to say yes to myself. I can't keep waiting on the world to invite me to this party or a person to let me do this thing. Um, and especially like we can't wait on people to make it easy 
for us to do what's best for ourselves. Right. And that, that's the thing I get hung up. I think a lot of people do too. Like I remember I had an ex years ago and like wanted to break up, knew the relationship wasn't working. Like it wasn't healthy, you know, and it was so clear, but it was almost like I wasn't allowed to, like he wouldn't let me go because he kept seeing me as the bad guy. And so I stayed stuck because I kept waiting on him to not hate me. <laughs> you know, it was like, if I can just convince him that this is what makes sense and I'm not bad and I did my best, like I'm not here to hurt him. This is for both of us. Then I could finally go, but he, he wouldn't receive that. And so I stayed stuck because I kept seeing me being the good guy is the only way I'd be allowed to move on when it's like, Oh, okay. No, that I have to be the one to give myself permission. Even if it means I'm the bad guy in someone's eyes, like, that's my job. No one else is going to step in and just like make that easy. Right. Yeah. Okay. What do you like, do to take I don't like oh. that lesson, by the way? I just, I, that's, <laughs> that's when I, I deeply hate that the world cannot make it easy for us to do what we need to do for ourselves. I hate I that. Know. <laughs> but you know what? I think I would resent something else trying to predetermine my life in some way too. That's a good point. I like that the alternative would be worse. <laughs> Um, okay. What do you do to take care of yourself? And after a long, hard day, is there just like one thing you absolutely have to do for yourself? So aside from scrolling on my phone and getting stuck in a dominoes game on my phone for hours, um, yeah, no, that is not self-care. That is my preferred self harm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that'll definitely be a thing, um, is yeah, like tuning out distraction. I engage in all the same unhealthy strategies that all of our clients do. It's real fun. But um, I definitely time with my dog. Loving on her is great. Playing blankets, like when she jumps on my bed, like that's my favorite bonding time is that. That sounds so cute. Yeah. And she like likes to crawl under the covers or like thrash the covers or she likes blankets staying on her face. Like if you put a towel on a dog, it's like they should move it away, but she likes to keep it just over her eye. Like, you know, so stuff like that is just very grounding and soothing. Um, so always like connecting with my dog is a constant things that are actually good for me. Like I think self-care has to be designed for the person, you know? Um, so like some people have a really hard time slowing down or taking a break or doing things. So they have to really practice relaxation, whatever. Like I'm fine with that. Like I don't get bored. I'm not, I don't have a restless need to constantly be going. But what I don't do is basic stuff that keeps me a functional adult. Like I, I don't want to plan a meal. I don't want to cook anything. I don't want to grocery shop. I don't want to have a bedtime. I don't want to have a routine. I don't want to text people back if I don't feel like I struggle so much with all the, the work you have to do to maintain the bigger important systems in your life. Like Friendships are hard for me because I'm like, I could go months without talking to someone and I'm not phased by it. Like it does, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I don't need that. But I'm like, oh, but that's not good for other people. Like that gets in the way of deeper relationships. And so I know what is good for me is structure. So I think that's the best version of self-care for me is like having Sundays where I have this little planner. I used to be like bullet journal or, you know, try and have these systems. Like, no, I need a very basic thing where it doesn't ask a lot of me, but I just write down, you know, what are the things, the appointments that week and what are meals and even like having 
a checklist of, I need to connect with three people this month. Like I literally have to make it a quantifiable like task because I don't do it. Otherwise I'll lose track of it. So that's an important thing for me is to have a structure and a system and something to anchor me to that stuff. Cause left to my own devices, like, oof. like thank God I have a job where I have to show up and meet people. Cause otherwise, <laughs> you know, it's like a free for all. Like I'm just not going to take care of myself in any other way, unless there's some structure, something kind of forcing me to do it. Okay. Okay. I feel like the next question you're going to have a heyday with. Um, <laughs> how would you define happiness? I love that you said that. Cause when I, when I hear that, I'm like, I just laugh, you know, I'm like happiness. Like there's an aversion. That is the first feeling is just like a, well, that's a complicated question. You know, um, I think the old way I would define it is something other people get to have that I don't. That's, <laughs> that's what happiness was. Um, I think it's like officially, you know, having more positive emotions than negative can be a mark of happiness. But I think now for me, it's, I see it as like being in alignment with oneself, you know, like knowing, knowing yourself and having that place to come home to so that kind of like talked about before that belonging, you know, wherever I go, I am like, that feels like a level of contentment and peace and ease um, for me. And I think too, like, this is maybe a way to be happy versus definition, but like not needing as many conditions to be met in order to be okay in any given moment. Because I found for myself, at least that when I have a lot of things that need to be a certain way for me to be okay, I am less happy, <laughs> you know? And so kind of focusing on how do I reduce the number of those conditions that have to be met in order for me to be at peace in this moment. So I, yeah, and it's not maybe a definition, but that's kind of where my mind goes is like just less demands on us in order to be okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay. What is the most a couple and couple vulnerable questions here. Mm-hmm. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date? I, I'm sure there have been more moments in session, like some I might be forgetting, but like in session with clients, honestly, it's hard for me to be embarrassed. I used to be embarrassed constantly as a kid. Like if I was not actively embarrassed, I was worried about when I was going to be embarrassed. Like that's just me, <laughs> just embarrassed, insecure. And, but then I realized like, oh, like embarrassment's normal and it's kind of more powerful when you just own it and it actually makes you feel closer to people. It's when we escape it and we're like running from it and hide it that we're like, well, now I feel a mile away from you and I'm really awkward. So yes, it's It's, just like lean into it. (laughs) And it's kind of like people that's similar to like people like worrying about being awkward and like it's the worry about being awkward that makes you awkward. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's like, go be awkward. I, it's like, people are good judges of character. Like people can see through people, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so we work so hard on like having a mask or being like, I just don't want someone to see this part of me. And it's like, Oh, don't worry. They see it, but okay. You've got the illusion that it's not seen, whatever makes you feel safe inside. And so, yeah, people know when we're uncomfortable, we're whatever. And so it is just so freeing to be like, Oh, they're already gonna see it. And it's way cooler when I'm at peace with it too. Like 
if I'm afraid of being awkward, I look twice as awkward when they see my awkwardness. Yes. My awkwardness. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Always. So yeah, I, I love the just like em- embrace the thing. It's going to make it easier to interact with the person, but right. like, so yeah, it's hard to think of in session, but I've had two, it was outside of session where one, I was running late per usual story of my life. Uh, so I was running late to my first appointment and there's, my office is great in that there's a like back entrance, front entrance. Um, and so, but I was like rushing through the parking lot, like a crazy person. And there's this really tight corner <laughs> and there's like a, one of those mirrors, you know, those like rounded mirrors to try and see, but I was just flying through and my client was coming at the same time. And I almost got in a head on collision with them trying to, oh, that would be awful. I know. And so that one, I felt very embarrassed because, uh, I mean, so many layers of like, I'm not a professional and I'm running late and like, Oh my God, I'm about to charge it. Like it was, I was highly embarrassed about that and felt just like, Oh my God. And then another one, this was awkward. So I was out on a boat party <laughs> and um, I, so I'm in a swimsuit drinking. And then I see a guy and I'm like, he looks familiar, but I can't place him. And he comes up to me and is like, Callie, good to see you. And I'm just like at a loss. And so my thought was like, did I go on like a bumble date with him? Like, so that's just what I assumed. And it turns out it was a client. Like, so oh, I no. Bad because I'm like, oh God, he probably registered. Like, I don't know who you are because he had to like remind me. He was like, from therapy. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, so I felt so. <laughs> it's like, I don't have any shame about not remembering because we didn't see each other for that long. And, it, you know, like, but I just, I felt bad on behalf of him. I'm like, oh my God, I don't want that to like make him feel insignificant in that moment. And then now that I know he's my client, the rest of the time we're on this boat together You're stuck. I mean, I'm literally stuck on a boat with this client where I'm just like oh god this is breaking all the like rules of how you're engaging with the client you know and I tried to like kind of stay separate and stuff but I'm just like yeah just getting drunk in a swimsuit with a male client like yeah so that was that was something <laughs> gotcha <laughs> that's a good one um okay next question are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy I am not currently in therapy, but I multiple times of going to therapy. Um, usually I end up in therapy based on a life dilemma kind of person. So there, there's some that go to therapy because they're like, I got this one wound. I'm trying to heal this thing. I'm diving in and I'm going to be here for years. And I tend to be like, something's come up where I, I can't get through it anymore or I, I can't see myself clearly. Very cool. Um, I, I, I'm glad. I, I mean, every time I have a therapist on the show, I really hope that they answer yes to that question because I don't know what a no answer would trigger within me. <laughs> yes. yes. I, it's, uh, there, there's someone in grad school. I, um, and I get it. She wasn't a therapist yet, but like, even then she's like, I've never been to therapy. And like that blew my mind. And I was like angry about it. I'm like, what are you doing here? Like it felt disrespectful. Yeah, yeah. Like you're going to show up and what do you just think? Like there are people that have issues and I don't. And therefore I will, <laughs> it's just like, what, how are you not going to go do the thing that you are going to be doing with clients? Like it, it very much bothered me. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm right there with you. Um, 
Well, Callie, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? I don't know. I feel like, I mean, people know self-compassion stuff, probably get a good sense of my personality for the most part. So that's, yeah. Yeah. I know that stuff. Um, I don't know. I feel like I should have a good answer for that. And I, I don't like, it's my, I think you've said everything that <laughs> that you needed to say, really. Yeah. Um, I guess one thing is just on a practical sense of like um, for other therapists, like I love doing consultation too, or helping with um, like private practice consultation or building or helping people to find a niche and stuff. So I really love the that side of stuff too, um, cool. or people with imposter syndrome. I used to do a workshop on that for therapists. And so love helping with that clinically. Um, and then also, even though this might not be relevant to many people, I'm using the Enneagram a lot more in therapy. It's my, I'm like, I've joined the cult or whatever. Um, but it's kind of for other people that don't know, it's like a personality typing system. There's numbers. When I first learned about it, I, I didn't like it, even though I love personality tests. I was like, this feels really basic and whatever. And then I came back around to it and explored it and realized its roots are, it just, it's like deeply spiritual, not religious. Like I'm atheist, but this fits perfectly with, um, it, it's all about explaining ego structures and defenses and the pains that we're running from and all the unique ways that we're each trying to avoid and protect and how that manifests for us. And so it gets it like what drives the behavior versus other personality things like Myers-Briggs, they kind of explain the behavior, but I love the Enneagram because it looks at like, oh, why do you do that? Because like people pleasing, right? we can all do that, but it's coming from a very different place. And so that's the thing that I'm really excited about, like incorporating more in my work. So when there's a client that like is already interested in the Enneagram, like I love being able to use that as a tool. Cause I just think it helps get at things so much more quickly. Like it gets it such to the like deeper roots. And so you can actually like dive into, you know, the real thing, the core of it versus just trying to work with the manifestation of it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, I love the Enneagram. I took a, a, a course at, at one point and then the pandemic hit and I, I had planned to take a bunch more, but then, mm-hmm. you know, the pandemic hit and things shifted and changed and then I lost sight of it, but it's something I, I'd like to get back into as well. That's cool yeah. that you do that. Yeah. So freaking obsessed with it. So many books, so many, yeah, it's like all I think about. So I'm sure it's annoying. Uh, do you, <laughs> do you remember what number you were when you, I, I was trying to think of that when, when you were mentioning it, and I can't remember what number I was. Well, if you recall or take it I'll again, it I'd, be, I'd be happy to know. You can reach out, and I'd be happy to talk about all things Enneagram with you. <laughs> cool. Well, I will definitely do that. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show, Callie. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. I have loved this and being able to discuss everything and getting to connect with you over everything. So, yeah, this has been super fun, and I'm glad I had the chance. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. 
So next week will be the last episode of the season, uh, and NQP will be going on a four-week break uh, before coming back strong uh, to start season five. So join us next week for an episode featuring Iris Cahill Cassiano, PhD licensed psychologist, who will be talking about her practice in an area of interest, creativity is self-care. Next Quest podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T dot com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.